0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: of the RECO Radio Hour, brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern Captain and producer of the show. We hope you will enjoy these stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time. You will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now, let's get the show in the air. Repa thirty, you're clear to start engines.
2: Hey.
0: Clear.
3: REPA 30, you're cleared for takeoff.
2: Roger, REAPA 30, uh, we're on the roll requesting a straight out departure.
3: That's approved, REPA 30.
4: From the mail wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, affectionately known as the Whisperliner. By the way, Eastern Airlines was the first to fly this three-engine Rolls-Royce-powered widebody, uh, which was we just heard take off. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www blog, talkradio.com forward slash
1: Captain Eddie
4: at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Remember to abbreviate the word Captain to C-A-P-T, and then just click on the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not begun. Better yet, why not do as many listeners do? Just call in the show at 213 213- 816 This will put you on a producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join in our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell a producer to unmute your phone's microphone. Then you can just join in the fun. As previously mentioned in our Reaper Radio Hour shows, we have added a new announcement to our broadcast each Thursday. When we are given the name, <clears throat> names of our deceased eastern pilots or their spouses passage to the west on their final flight, we will pay honor to these men and women who once flew the skies of this great airline. Now Captain Neal, do we have any names that we can that we have that passed away this week?
1: Yes, thanks, Don. We received this notice during the past week from REPA. It reads, ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you that we just learned of the passing of former Eastern First Officer Floyd Curry Jr. Captain George Zupko reports that First Officer Curry flew for Polar Air Cargo after Eastern and that he died on May 12, 2020 at the age of 74. And, Don, looking back through the early issues of the Pitcairn newsletter called Newswing, I found this death announcement of the first pilot with the parent company of Eastern. That was Pitcairn. And the first pilot lost in service. I like to pay tribute by playing this short sound clip of pilot Sidney malloy rushton sydney malloy november twenty seventh nineteen o two september thirteenth nineteen twenty nine r sydney malloy pilot on the richmond atlanta division died in line of duty when fog obscured his course on the early morning of September 13th. Feeling his way into Atlanta through the thick haze, his ship struck a radio tower at Fort McPherson, the only obstacle of its height for a considerable area. Bad fortune played the most important role in an accident which, in the Sympathy and sorrow it evoked showed vividly the interest and affection centered by the American public upon the pilots of the air mail service. Pilot Molloy joined Pitcairn Aviation Incorporated on April 15, 1927, more than a year before the Atlanta, New York mail service was inaugurated. He spent a week at the Pitcairn Aircraft Incorporated factory at uh, Bryn Affen and then went to Greensboro, North Carolina, as a field manager there, where he stayed until the airmail uh, line started. He piloted the first load of mail that landed on Richmond E. Bird Field, Richmond, Virginia. He was known widely throughout the South where he had been a prominent aviation figure despite his youth. Malloy was 26 and unmarried. Prior to joining this company, Pilot Malloy had done exhibition, commercial, and aerial survey work throughout the South, at first working independently and then as a member of the Shank McMullen Aircraft Company and the Aero Engineering Company. Pilot Malloy met his death in the first serious accident of his flying career. We wish to extend sincere sympathy to his father, Dr. R.C. Malloy, and his family of Columbus, Mississippi. Don, back to you.
4: Okay, well, thank you, Neil. That was very nice. As we said in our previous shows, we will make available this time on the radio show whenever we have an announcement. Now, let's head up to Long Island, New York, where Captain Mike Scott is at the controls. Mike?
2: Yes, Don. Uh, thanks. And it's uh, great that the radio show honors these eastern pilots and spouses taking their final flight west during these broadcasts. We hope they come to us few and far between. Today we have three stories our, our, our producer has selected from the pages of Reaper Tea. But before we ask him to play these, I would like to call to attention the title of the association's magazine. Harry, can you tell our listeners a little significance of the title?
3: Sure, Captain. Uh, From what I've been able to piece together, that instead of calling the newsletter, well, simply newsletter, one of the members back then decided the information going out to the retired pilot members of Eastern Airlines should get a more respectable name. And since Webster's defines the word repartee as, number one, a quick and witty reply. Definition number two, a succession of interchange of clever retorts. And definition number three, amusing and usually light sparring with words. Number four, adroitness and cleverness in reply skill. This pretty much described what was in and about the magazine they were publishing. Thus we have REPARTee. And as luck would have it, the first four letters of the word was the name of the organization, R E P A all caps followed by the R T E E in lower case. Retired Eastern Pilots Association, REPA. So, REPARTee it would become. Frankly, I don't think a leading New York advertising firm could have come up with a more appropriate name for the magazine.
2: I agree, Harry. But, you know, when we hear most of the people pronounce the word, you hear different pronunciations. So I asked Alexa or Google how to pronounce the word. Here's what she said.
3: Repertee. Repertee. Repertee.
0: Repertee.
1: Repartee. Now, you think everybody understands how to pronounce it, <laughs> Mike? <laughs>
4: Sounded like you said repartee.
1: <laughs> and now we know
2: we'd probably go back to my old way, you know. The Webster pretty much fully describes what I've seen, read, and heard from these shows, and having many copies of the magazine, it's most appro- an appropriate name. Too bad it's no longer in publication. Don?
4: Well, guys, for our listeners, here is, here is how you can read any of the nearly 50 years of this magazine, of this amazing magazine. Go to REPA's website at www.repaonline.com, that's R-E-P-A-online.com, and click on the repartee as the menu bar. Captain Jerry Frost, our treasurer of Repartee, has scanned every issue of the newsletters and the magazines over the history of its origin. Many go through the years and turn the pages to this one-of-a-kind Repartee newsletter, better known as Repartee. Hey, even I got the publication right, according to Electra. Repartee, she said. And Captain Neal, I understand that you've got some issues that you published when you were the editor back in 1999 to
1: 2003. Is that right? Yep. I took over from Captain Bill Malone, whose articles, many articles, you have heard uh, on this radio hour, REPA radio hour. And he was the editor for 15 years. And he took over from several other Editors along the way, and uh, Bill did a fantastic job. He changed the format of the magazine into one that he wanted it to imitate. Do you remember? You guys remember the old former Life magazine? You guys remember that yep. publication?
0: Yeah. Yep. Life? Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: And then there was a Saturday Evening Post and many of those. Well, uh, Bill wanted to have a publication that had a big picture in the center of the cover of the magazine, just like Life magazine, kind of indicating what the, the, the magazine was about for the, for the week or month. I forgot how often it was published. I think it was a weekly publication. Could have been a monthly. But he tried to, uh, he tried to duplicate that, and he did a great job and uh, started to use slick paper instead of just 20-bond paper, and uh, did a great changeover formatting uh, the magazine. When I took over from Bill, I had my own ideas about the magazine, and, and I decided that, well, <clears throat> since we got Life magazine cover, and by the way, Bill even included the back cover of, of his issues that he published, a pinup. And one of the favorite pinups that he used to use, you remember that pose that Betty Grable, uh, posed for the photographer with her back to the camera and her nylon stocking hose with the seam going up the back. And of course, those right, nice rounded cheeks <laughs> of Betty Grable. Uh, mm-hmm. well, he, he he did that and he did Rita Hayworth and several other, uh, pinups that he used in the issues. And, um, uh, so I decided I was going to change a few things. I didn't use that, but I changed it to a different format. I put color to it. It was the first time that we'd ever used color, and uh, and I started off with color on the covers of the magazine, and then eventually I included color on pages and especially those pages at our convention when we did a collage of uh, pictures that my wife and I would sit down and take pictures at the convention, come back with our scissors, and we would cut the faces uh, out of the pictures, and then we would glue it on a page and and, uh, take a picture of it, and that would be included, and they would be in color. And uh, so we did some changes, and before I turned it over to uh, the – the great editor, uh, Jim Holder, who's not with us today, but uh, uh, I changed the, the style of the format so that we would have columns like most magazines have three columns. So that was a change in the magazine. So it was a lot of fun being the editor of that magazine. And we we really had a first-class publication that other re- airline retiree associations we're asking to be on our mailing list, and they were trying to duplicate what we had done. Well, actually, Bill Malone did a great part of it, and, uh, and so I would send them issues, uh, just uh, uh, free, free issues to the publishers of National Airlines, of Braniff, of TWA, and some of the others that had asked for our publications so they could get their own ideas. And uh, it was a lot of fun to do that. Back to you, Harry, enough of my talk. Well, uh, Neil, just to follow up on
3: that, you know, our, our friend Jim Holder sent me a few copies of the Repartee, and I was totally amazed how great this magazine is put together, the, uh, just everything about it, the photography. It is it, it a first-class publication, and, of course, I looked at some of the early editions back uh, from the 70, 70s, 72 in that area, and it looks like it started out just as a little newsletter on a mimeograph
0: machine. So uh, yeah.
3: you guys really did a great job on that magazine. Yeah. Any organization would be proud of that magazine. Well, but, Harry, uh,
1: uh, Harry, after Ducey, all all uh, the, yeah. editors, after the editors of the magazine were retired folks, so we didn't have anything better to do.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you used your time wisely. I'll say that. Uh Mr. Producer, how about telling us the story from the pages of Repartee?
1: Here's one for you. This was written for the 1981 issue of Repartee. It's titled, Did You Ever Know Charles H. Carl Dolan? Unless you were with Eastern prior to 1934, you probably did not know Carl Dolan, and you miss knowing one of the real aviation pioneers. John Halliburton, whom, whom Carl hired when he was operations manager of Eastern Air Transport, has sponsored Carl as an affiliate member of REPA. Here are a few facts about Carl, who was born on January 29, 1895. He is the last surviving member of the original 38 Americans of the Lafayette Escadrille in 124 of World War I. This was the first group of American pilots to ever fight in a war. Carl started his aviation career in 1913 building wind tunnel models to check on wind efficiency for MIT. He moved to England where he was final inspector for the first airplane Magneto made in that country. Later he became an engineer with Sperry Gyroscope Company of England and was assigned to Paris. In Paris, he met some American pilots who were training to fly for the French. He became interested, but had to join the French Foreign Legion first in order to avoid losing his American citizenship. This was in 1916, and his first flight training was at the Blériot School of Aviation as a second-class private. He continued with his training at aboard with Newport's then to the PAU School of Aerobatics and Combat, and from there to the Machine Gun School at Placees Belleville. From there, he was assigned to the Lafayette Escadrille in one two four, as a ser- sergeant pilot. Here, he joined the Americans, including Norman Prince. Kiffin Rockwell, James McConnell, Victor Chapman, Captain James Norman Hall, Major Kermit Marr, Major David uh, uh, Peterson, Major Raoul Luthberry, and Lieutenant Colonel William Thaw. He flew nine battles with the Lafayette Escadrille under their French commander. In early 1980 or 18, 1918, along with 15 other American pilots, he transferred to the U.S. Army Air Service. Lieutenant Dolan then flew with the 103rd Aero Squadron of the 3rd Pursuit Wing. This was the only American Air Service organization on the front for nearly two months. In this group, Carl served in every position from pilot, to squadron commander. He was shot down at Verdun, but made it okay. In sending in his application for member, uh, affiliate membership with REPA, Carl noted that the hat and ring insignia used by Eastern and REPA was originally the personal insignia of James Norman Hall in the Lafayette Escadrille a year before it was adopted by the 94th Aero Squadron. Upon Carl's return to the U.S. in 1918, he was stationed at Carlstrom and Dor Fields in Florida in charge of air training systems and as engineering officer in charge of planes and equipment. From 1919 to 1920, he was assigned to the office of the Director of Air Service in Washington. He resigned from the military in 1920. In 1921, at the request of General Billy Mitchell and Colonel Hickam, Hickam, he was sent to China. On the way to China, he stopped off in Hawaii, where he met Ramona Morgan, niece of the governor of Hawaii. He later married her in July 1921 in Peking, China. Carl established China's first flying school at Peking, flew the first airmail in China, and started their first airline. Upon completion of the China mission, he returned to Hawaii where he was appointed to the Territorial Air Board and made chairman of the Committee on Design and Development of Airports. He designed John Rogers Field, which is now the Honolulu International Airport. He made an inter-island air route feasibility survey, which resulted In formation of Inter Island Airways Limited, the predecessor of Hawaiian Hawaiian Air. The first flight was between Maui and Hilo on November eleventh, nineteen twenty-nine. In nineteen thirty, Thomas Morgan, president of the Sperry Gyroscope Company, engaged Carl to make a survey of Pitcairn Aviation, which had just been purchased by the Sperry North American Aviation Group. Carl writes that after the survey, he recommended a hundred changes and was hired as operations manager. He later became vice president of operations. At Eastern, he practically wrote the operations manual himself. He hired Howard Stark, one of the best instrument pilots at that time, to instruct all of Eastern's pilots. And under Carl, there was further development of the night mail and passenger service from New York to Atlanta and then on to Miami. Eastern's safety record, on time record, and the expertise of the pilots in weather flying at that time was a tribute to Carl Dolan's leadership. He left Eastern when Captain Rickenbacker came in as general manager. Actually, Eastern was just a short interlude in Carl's long career in aviation. During World War II, he was president of Rearwin Aircraft and Engineering and was involved building combat CG-4A gliders for the Allied landings in Europe. During the Korean War, he was recalled into service with the U.S. Air Force as a colonel at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In 1955, he retired from the Air Force at the age of 60. He lived in Vero Beach for some time and then moved to Hawaii, where he now lives with his wife, Ramona. Since moving there, though semi-retired, he he has remained close to aviation. Carl was a guest of French President Charles de Gaulle in 1966 for the 50th reunion reunion of the Lafayette Escadrille, and a guest of the French Air Force in 1976 for the 60th reunion. Although Carl is the only survivor of the original Lafayette Escadrille in 124 the squadron still exists and is now flying F-4 Phantoms. His decorations are too numerous to list, from the French... U.S. and Chinese. Carl was one of the founders of the Wings Club in New York, a member of the Early Birds, the QBEs, the Order of the Dallians, the Flying Corps Association, and many other organizations. Although he says that he is not a joiner, all of the officers and members of REPA welcome him as an affiliate member and hope to have the opportunity to meet him personally. In the future, well of course story. yeah of course Carl died and uh but uh, you know we always think about uh Rickenbacker as being uh, the the strongest probably uh, character and individual, and accomplished so many things, especially the Medal of Honor uh but we did have some great people. That uh, were in management and flew for Eastern. Uh, Carl was one of the earlier ones, and uh, of course we had Scott Crossfield. We had uh, Dick Merrill, one of one of the legendary pilots that flew the line, and uh, we we had so many of them, and many of them were affiliate members and honorary members of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, REPA. So I'd like to bring up that um especially being a member of our organization. Um, any thoughts well, you about
2: know those though there the uh, 94th uh, is now uh, of late They're they're flying the raptors now the same no. squadron I for, I think okay. they're out, I forgot exactly what base they're on but uh I, I remember reading something about that and also you had mentioned the uh the CG 4 uh, the gliders and whatnot. And of course those were, uh, uh I didn't hear Waco aircraft, uh, mentioned in there, because, but they, <laughs> they were the ones that made them.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Interesting story. Yeah. Very interesting. And, uh, that was in, uh, a rep magazine. And, and, uh, we have one more to follow and that's all we have as far as stories. But uh, this one is a story about uh, an early licensee, a pilot licensee. Actually, you know, we, we refer to a license, pilot license. There's no such thing as a pilot license. I guess you guys knew that. It's called a certificate, a pilot yeah. certificate. But we just know driver's licenses and and uh, other types of licenses, so we just simply refer to a pilot license. But I want you to get the license number as it's referred to in the article uh, of uh, Frank Jordan, and that's coming up right now. Here is the story about Frank Jordan. Often in the, in the publication Repartee, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Official magazine, there would be book reviews. This one is by John Engel about the book Pilot of Fortune by Frank Jurdone, New York, New York Vantage Press, the publishers in 1986. It has a Ford by Senator Barry Goldwater with illustrations. John's review is as follows This person account of exciting episodes of aviation pioneering in the 20s and 30s is authored by a REPA member with Commercial Pilot License number 5, the lowest number of any living pilot. Frank Jardone possesses both a vast store of personal experiences and friendships in aviation and an exceptional brilliance in writing talent. Through his ability to create lively conversations, the reader feels almost as though present as the action develops, and there is action aplenty. Repartee readers will especially enjoy his EAT, Eastern Air Transport, experiences from the spring of 1930 to the fall of 1933, while EAT evolved from a mail-wing-only line to a full-service passenger airline. Spanning the book's 20 years are his 20 chapters, modestly named simply by the geographical locations where they took place, but the names themselves give hint to the diversity the reader may expect. Buenos Aires, Rio de Janeiro, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Quebec, London, New York, Washington, Detroit, Atlanta, Miami, Los Angeles, and Hollywood, for example. Another clue to the scope of those 20 years of activities and adventures might be found in his affiliations and titles. Flunky, self-styled to two pilots operating a seagull, a Curtis Seagull flying boat from a little beach on the Severn River near Annapolis. A Carlson Field Cadet, a barnstormer, Brooks Field Reserve Officer candidate and junior airplane pilot. Langley Field Rated Airplane Pilot and First Lieutenant, Department of Commerce Aeronautics Branch Research Pilot, then Licensing Inspector, Sales Pilot for Chalet Brock Aircraft, a Lockheed Distributor, a Founding Division Superintendent and Pilot of the New York Rio Buenos Aires Airline in South America. Passenger pilot number two with Eastern Air Transport, later becoming chief pilot of the Southern Division in Atlanta. Technical director to Dave Selznick, MGM producer in Hollywood. A personal pilot to Earl Halliburton of Halliburton Oil Well uh, Cementing Company of Oklahoma while gold mining in Honduras. Founder and part owner of Lenev, which eventually. Became known as Lanica, and later, under Lowell Yarrick, becoming the national airline of Nicaragua. Pilot for Vaulty Aircraft Corporation in London. We're not through yet. Proposed founder of a licensing and inspection department of, for the Republic of Panama. Pilot of Aerovias Nacional of Costa Rica. And just before World War II, a ranch owner in Arizona. But the glamour of these jobs and places pales compared to the excitement and risk of danger in those early days, such as having to fly passengers in strange new airplanes without prior flight checkouts, innumerable difficult landings, forced landings, a one-wheel landing on an Eastern Air Transport inaugural Condor flight with the other wheel dangling below the belly, no two way radio and no emergency equipment on field in Atlanta. A landing during a blind, blinding rainstorm in a hayfield with an EAT Kingbird followed by a takeoff with wheels sinking up to the axles in soft ground. And the horror of a mechanic walking into his spinning propeller. All these incidents and others will hold you spellbound. And almost in disbelief at the lack of safety developments then compared to now. Jourdain opts to end his book just before being called up to duty in the Air Corps during World War II. Because, as he says, I was only one of thousands of officers who, because of our age, were given staff duties and allow to occasionally fly ferry mission within the continental limits of the United States. In December of 1978, he moved his retirement home to Daytona, Daytona Beach, Florida, and was invited to in 1986 to join REPA by two fellow pioneers, Captains Johnny Armstrong and John Halliburton. Interesting. Uh, book report, yep. and that was done by my my uh, great friend and partner for a few years here in Jacksonville, Florida, John Engel. John, as most of you knew, uh, helped me uh, put together the best of repartee, which was a hardbound book of some of the stories uh, that uh, appeared in the years uh, over the years of that great magazine. So we had some great affiliate members and honorary members of REPA. And um, any, any uh, thoughts? Uh, well, by the uh, way, the, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Uh, I'm trying
2: to remember what year it was that they came out with license numbers for, uh, for, for all of the pilots, because I know the first, uh, uh three or four license numbers that were issued were the guys that worked in the uh in the in the in the uh the the section that issued the license so they of yeah. course yeah. got got the lowest numbers and I I'm not sure I don't I'm try, I was trying to remember when they started to do that because I Well
1: you know uh Mike uh, since you mentioned that I used to fly with uh Jess Langford And uh, he would always win a bet uh, at uh, parties or at the bar, uh, pilots uh, around the bar or whatever, as to who had the lowest pilots certificate number. And Jess took over. I don't know how he did it. He told me one time, because I used to fly with Jess a lot, but his license number or his certificate number was 51, 51. (laughs) Yeah. And his father was, like you say, in the licensing, a licensing division.
2: Right. And,
1: yeah. Uh, he took his father's number. Yeah.
2: That's interesting. I, I was, you know, I was compared my number to my dad's. My dad had the uh, license number three one eight two five, which was a oh, five-digit number. It's pretty yeah. long. He got it, He got it in the '30s. Yeah. But I'm uh, trying to remember what year that was. I'll have to look that up.
1: Yeah. Well. uh Laurie Young, here in Jacksonville, had uh, an operation years ago that Laurie, uh, his son, became an eastern captain, a, a pilot, in the, an eastern captain. His son's still alive, lives down in the Ocala area, and occasionally I would see him at the Repa conventions. And as a matter of fact, I've been trying to give him a picture of his dad, Laurie Sr., because Laurie Young flew... His airplane uh, from Larry Young Flight School out to meet uh, Charles Lindbergh on his way back home on the steamship coming from uh, the, the you know Europe from from Paris yeah. back to America, and he he dropped a, a bottle with a note in it right on deck of that sh- of that ship, and it was an invitation to come to Jacksonville uh, on his tour around America, and uh, it was so interesting. About that, Uh, Larry Young signed my logbook on my commercial flight, and his certificate number was
2: 7171. Yeah, that's nice nostalgia.
1: Yeah, it's about all it's worth, though. (laughs) Sitting around a bar, having a beer or two, and so.
2: Well, that's it.
1: uh, (laughs) uh, You gotta have
2: something to talk about while you're greasing the elbow. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Peanut, nuts, peanuts and popcorn and, and <laughs> goldfish yeah. <laughs> oh yeah harry i haven't heard from you you've been quiet here what what say you harry
3: <laughs> well I, i'll say as a non-pilot with uh eastern for a few years uh i had limited contact with you guys because of my job as a crew scheduler but i i have uh of course we, we lived in different circles different times but i i regret i didn't get to know a lot of you guys better some great stories some great men and uh just reading the in in repa uh the repartee magazine some of the very interesting careers these men had and uh you know hanging around the office none of them never really talked about it or bragged about it they were there to to do their job and that's what they did but uh I would just say that.
1: Yeah, and Don. You know, I, feel, you, 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 I was going to ask Don, you, you, you had a lot of pilots coming through where you worked, Don. So, uh, yeah, your yeah. thoughts? I was just
4: thinking about that. Uh, I worked uh, at Lauderdale Operations, like Atlanta, Miami. Uh, uh, it was interesting uh, as the guys would come in to check in to sign their paperwork. It was a lot of uh, introductions uh, behind the desk there. Uh, Oh, I haven't seen you in a long time. How have you been? How's the family? How's this? How's that?
1: Yeah.
4: Um, It was kind of a place that, uh, you know, I I think there was a lot of nervousness involved. Not nervousness, but, you know, hey, I got to take an airplane out, you know, with people on it. Not that kind of nervous. But uh, uh, it was basically pretty good. Pretty good camaraderie between uh, uh, all the guys uh, in there. We never had an argument or anything, uh, as I recall.
1: Yeah, uh, until until, Don, you ran swim <laughs> <laughs> until you ran oh, into Slim Cox. Uh, until <laughs> you ran into Slim Cox.
2: Well, I was yeah. kind of the same. I was kind of the same way as Harry was, where he he, he didn't get too involved. I didn't get too involved with the pilots on the maintenance end until I was a. Uh, uh, became a line maintenance supervisor working the terminal, and I did know an awful lot of the pilots that my dad knew. So I would always try to say hello to those guys when I saw them. But uh, we were kind of a separate thing, and then and, uh, I, I would have, they used to have the computers in the morning, who had all of the uh, the crews on, on what airplane for what flight that were going out and were coming in. So I used to, I used to print that out in the morning, and any of the ones that I knew. Uh, if we, if, uh, if we didn't have a maintenance problem somewhere else, I always could try to meet them either coming or going just to say hello. So that uh, was my affiliation with most of the Eastern pilots because uh, I, I never, uh, like I said, I never, Eastern would never hire me. They told me I was too dumb. So, uh, I ended up having, I had to, I had to, get, I had to go around and go through the back door to get in. So that's because uh, when I quit Eastern back in the end of 1978, that's when, I started getting paid to fly, and then uh, I met more guys after I left, uh, probably than when I was working there.
1: Yeah, golly. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, when you said uh, you were, uh, you, you there was something that Eastern didn't, you you didn't measure up to whatever the eye eye vision or whatever. You know, uh, we had one guy I used to fly with, and I, his last name was Roy. And I can't think of his first name. And uh, he was the shortest pilot Eastern had. And it was was so Howard Howard. Roy. Howard Roy. Thank you, Harry. But you remember Howard. He was almost a midget. He was almost in the midget static class. Yes. But uh, I used to fly with him as a co pilot on the 727. And uh, he told me the story about how he was hired. And uh, he said he went into. I forgot the name of the chief pilot with uh, Eastern that I don't know whether it was Rudy. Uh, um, oh, at any rate, Frank Kern or some one of those guys that was doing the hiring. And he came into the office with his application and talked to the chief pilot. And, and the chief pilot put him off and said, uh, we don't hire boys. We, you're, you're just too small. You, you can't fly with us. So he turned him down. Well, yeah. he went to work for the Colonial Airline, and later on, Eastern merged with Colonial <laughs> Airline. He fixed him, and, and Howard came back into the same guy that hired that turned him down and says, well, your little boy is back with you, reporting to work.
3: What do you think he, he was, Neil, 5'7", maybe?
1: Yeah, maybe 5'5", five, five or 5'7", five, but, you know, he told me one time, he said, you know, height does have its advantage. I said, what do you mean? He sa- and he got up out of his seat, and he walked back to the cockpit door in the 727, and he says, look. He says, now, when a flight attendant comes, and I can see her through the peephole, and the door opens, look where I'm standing. <laughs> 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 but, you know, yeah. he, didn't let, he didn't let it bother him. He always made humor of his, uh, of his height. Yeah. And I don't know, but Harry he he was probably five, six or seven, somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, he
2: was pretty yeah, small. in my case, trying to get on with Eastern they uh you know, they uh, I got a little smart too soon old uh, too soon and smart too late. I was a little older and old yeah. time and uh, I wasn't a I wasn't a college boy. And uh, and then as as soon as they started to think about possibly putting me on, that's when they, they came up with the no nepotism thing. So oh, that was yeah. the end of that. So yeah. I knew
1: my
2: I knew I was finished then. So when an opportunity came along, I scooted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Delta carried that nepotist thing for many, many, many years. I don't know whether they still practice it or not, but I don't think so. But uh, you could well. The only good a, thing
2: that, the thing that was good about it is, you know, of course, the retirement age was sixty, then it went to sixty-five. So yeah. I, I beat them all. I ended up flying until I was over 75. So
1: <laughs> You did that.
3: <laughs> and
2: and all, all the guys that had to retire, they all were coming to me looking for a job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I got
2: even. All right.
1: Well, very, very good program today. And, and um, Don, I'm going to turn it back over to you to close us out of here.
4: Okay. Well, uh, it was a great show, and all of us uh, have this week, but uh, always uh, leave some time for current events of Eastern and airline industry in general, and that just brings me to a thought that just came to my mind. Excuse me. Yesterday on the news, uh, apparently next month, November, uh, United Airlines is going to start uh, flying New York, I'm sorry Newark to London, but it's a special deal where you have to check in three hours ahead of time Wow, and they're gonna do one of those uh, instant c coronavirus checks. Yeah. Has anybody heard about that?
1: no, not me
4: uh, it just it just popped up on the news. Uh, Last night, late last night It was late when I heard it uh, But they're going to start doing that At the gate, apparently Uh, the passengers will check in And They'll go to a a certain Designated area, I guess And get tested And if they're positive, they'll take them And of course They come overseas to London And right now, Europe is in trouble With this CV uh, stuff It's, uh It's bad just like it is here. Anyway, I thought I'd bring that up.
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, as far as what's coming up, uh, we've got the radio show Monday, this coming Monday. And, of course, it's uh, musical history. And we're doing uh, songs by America's top ten greatest songwriters. So uh, be sure to listen in Monday, and that's November 3rd. And, you know, we we are happy to continue providing Eastern family with so many different ways to keep the Eastern memory alive, and that's what this is all about, and to connect with friends and fellow employees. And you can do that almost daily with uh, Dorothy's great website Uh, EALradioshow.com. And there you'll find the latest news of the old and the new. And the new, of course, we bring to you Monday evenings with Mark Porter doing a rundown of uh, what's happening to the new 3.0 version of Eastern Airlines and the big airplanes now that they're flying, the 767s, 777s, and 747s. And uh sounds like they're doing a great job from the reports that we hear Mark give us every Monday evening. So you need to tune in and find out what's happening to the brand that we knew for so long. And, yeah, that logo is still on the side of their airplanes. So uh, tune in and listen to Mark tell us what's happening. We encourage you to add your voice, of course, to our broadcasts and make it a little bit more colorful. Calling in and sending to the website your comments. Now, don't make it too colorful. We've had a few obscene callers over the past 10 years of our broadcasting. And I, as you know, I don't have one of those seven-second filters. And I just had to listen to this guy deliver about 10 seconds before it, it dawned on me. This guy was filthy. I mean, really filthy. you talking about a porno yeah. call. It was a porno <laughs> call. Don, do you remember that one?
2: I remember <laughs> oh, one.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, anyhow, you never know what you're going to hear when you tune in our radio show. And as I sometimes, and Dorothy doesn't like me to say it, kitchen table radio. But the <laughs> website is there, and it's nothing. It's not a kitchen table radio, a website. Browse the pages, and you'll be catching up not only the news, but you'll see many photos of your colleagues on those pages that she's put in there. So uh, remember again this Monday. And hello, folks from the Dominican Republic. I saw uh, on our stat board that you were one of the countries that tuned us in, and uh, also Slovenia. And we have Slovakia that tuned us in and are tuning us in. I see they're becoming regular listeners. So. Uh, it's good to see a few more countries that we haven't heard the names of. So now I'm going to turn it back over to you, Don, to close us out of here.
4: Okay. Uh, for, your, for all our listeners, here's how you can read any of the nearly 50 years of this amazing magazine. Go to Reaper's website at www.repaonline.com. And click on the Repartee menu bar. And excuse me, Neil, while I go to the next... I'm sorry. Um, Neil, I've...
1: I've, I've I'm going to give you a little bit sleep. of this, Don. Here you go. Listen uh, up. About, There you go. <laughs> well,
4: <laughs> thanks, Neil. <laughs> we'll see you again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee as printed in the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association and other publications. And by the way, if you haven't heard, visit our website. It's www.ealradioshow.com and you'll find many, many more great Eastern stories and memories. So it's time to say so long. So on behalf of all of our hosts, and our producer, Captain Neil Holland This is John Gagnon Thing. So long, Eastern family We love you, Eastern We love you, Eastern So long, guys So long Good job Good show
0: But you locked me out of your mind you left me standing here behind Silver In the sunlight roaring, in Headed somewhere in flight They're taking, taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight Taking you away, babe, and leaving me lonely, silver wings, slowly fading out of sight, slowly fading out of sight. So long, guys.